Over the past two years, the COVID-19 pandemic has devastated national economies and the features of young people. And few countries have hurt more than Colombia. Since April, nationwide strikes led by students, Afro-Colombians and indigenous people have repeatedly shut down parts of the South American country. They're asking for a new government, a new economy, a new everything. But the administration of President Ivan Duque not only hasn't listened, according to protesters, it has crushed dissent to the point of death. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today is Wednesday, September 1st, 2021. Thousands of people flee the Lake Tahoe area as wildfire encroaches on homes. Six men are sentenced to death in Bangladesh for the 2016 slayings of Zulhats Manan and another LGBT activist. And dub music legend Lee Scratch Perry passes away at 85. We can't play any of the upsetters' music, so all we can offer is our respect. Colombia is just one of many nations across the world where young people are rising up during the pandemic. But what's happening here is a case study of whether the old adage of the Latin American left can still happen in the age of COVID-19. Otro mundo es posible. Another world is possible. We'll speak with LA Times Mexico City Bureau Chief Patrick J. McDonald, who was in Colombia this summer. And we'll hear from Colombians themselves about why they're angry and why they're protesting. Growing up in Colombia is hard already. There are many children who don't even have access to basic elementary school. They don't even have that access. Here in Colombia, being young, you have no future. That was 20-year-old student Stephanie Avendaño speaking with the LA Times during a rally this past summer in Bogota, attended by hundreds of thousands of people. My colleague Patrick J. McDonald was there as part of a series that the LA Times is doing called The World They Inherit, which focuses on young people in this time of uncertainty. Patrick, welcome to The Times. Pleasure to be here, Gustavo. Gracias. Most Americans still associate Colombia with drug cartels and guerrilla warfare, sadly. But people forget it's one of the largest economies in Latin America, major partner of the United States. And things were somewhat stable in the country before the pandemic hit. Yes, for sure. Colombia is one of the most important economies in Latin America, and it has been relatively stable. I think a lot of people in the States probably have the impression of Colombia as a place riven with crime and warfare and drug trafficking, but it has been a relatively stable country. The guerrilla war that went on for decades, there was a peace treaty signed. It's been trying to kind of lurch back, and it's a key U.S. ally in terms of national defense, in terms of anti-drug policy, and also it's kind of the staging ground for U.S. efforts to change the government in in neighboring Venezuela. And uh, there's a sense of normality in much of Colombia when one visits it. Now, the pandemic hits, that kind of throws everything into disarray. People are obviously very upset and on the streets. How did coronavirus hit Colombia differently than, say, other Latin American countries, both economy-wise and health-wise? Not sure if it hit differently. I mean, it, it hit, you know, with almost equal force as neighboring Peru. The health system was kind of unprepared. Colombia took a lot of actions in terms of lockdowns and so forth. But, the, you know, the health system was it was unprepared. There's a large cohort of poor people who don't have access to health care. There's a large informal economy. People have to work regardless of what's going on health-wise. We saw this very similar situations, lamentably, in Peru, in Ecuador, in Brazil. You know, huge plunges in economic output and high fatality and infection rates. 
all of this is happening. And then in April of this year, as you mentioned earlier, the president of Colombia, Ivan Duque, he announces a tax increase. And that's when the protests really start going off. Yeah, that was the detonation point, that tax increase, which the president said was basically to make up for some of the shortfalls from revenues caused by the pandemic. But the reaction was immediate against that because people realized right away that it would mostly hurt poor and working class people. So people were on the streets very, very quickly mobilizing against this. I mean, Ivan Duque, he was a very, very close ally of the United States, a key strategic partner of the United States, quickly retracted the tax plan. But by then, the uh, protests had kind of transformed into something much bigger. Mass protests in, in many, many Colombian cities and towns, seeking more opportunities, again, led largely by young people, but including, a, you know, a diverse array of folks. You know, police brutality became a major, major issue during the protests since, you know, several dozen protesters were killed. Human rights groups and others blamed the police. There, there was clearly some police overreaction. I mean, in truth, there was also some protesters burning police stations and, and other things. But police overreaction was, was condemned widely. The president promised some reforms. Whether they will come or not remains to be seen. But, I mean, the country was kind of throttled by these protests for the better part of two months. And that's what's interesting to me, that when usually when you hear about tax protests, it's always going to be the middle class, adults. But in this case, it really set off the young people more than anything, and other people followed. Yeah, I think there was just mounting frustration. As I said, there had been a round of protests before the pandemic hit. And, you know, this was, you know, a second detonation point. And it was botched tax reform effort. I think even the presidential aides will admit that they, they retracted it right away because people quickly realized that it would have a large impact on poor and, and working class people who were already suffering. And, uh, you know, it was just one of these, you know, moments when people hit the street and said no mas, so to speak. They wanted changes. They wanted something different. And their frustration poured out throughout the country. And I'm talking about rural areas, urban areas, coastline, the capital, Bogota, which is in the mountains. I mean, it's very, very dramatic series of protests. And the issues, as I say, are pretty much unresolved. We'll have more after this break. Patrick, on May 5th, a 37-year-old student and activist named Lucas Villa was killed and he was shot eight times. His death galvanized protesters. Why? You know, that was a very symbolic death. That was in a coffee-growing city named Pereira. To this day, you see graffiti signs and placards remembering Lucas. He was a student. He was in his 30s, but he was very well-known on campus. He was very much an activist in the protest movement. He was there every day encouraging people. He would bring food. Uh, he would, you know, always be kind of at the forefront of these protests. And, uh, you know, one day somebody drove by, apparently an unknown gunman, and shot him dead. He was shot a number of times. There was also some uh, feeling that a few days before the mayor of, of that particular town had kind of said, uh, you know, we need to kind of band together against these protesters. And some people viewed that as kind of a call to vigilantism uh, and paramilitary action. Unfortunately, Colombia has a long history of that. There were quite a few cases of non-uniformed people who were armed driving by in cars and just taking pot shots, which was apparently what happened to him. You know, his, his death did very much kind of galvanize people, and particularly in Pereira, in that town. You attended a rally in Bogota this summer. What, what did you see? 
I mean, one of the things we think of in Colombia is music. And these rallies are very musical. I mean, there's musicians who are playing, there's drums going all the time. It's not just people standing around chanting. I mean, there's people dancing, there's performances. Some of the street protests were very creative, not only in terms of music, but also in terms of some of the skits. In one protest I attended, for instance, there were a number of students who dressed up in suits, marched to the attorney general's office, and then made speeches kind of denouncing what they consider the corruption of the political parties. And at one point, they opened up a bricks of white flour, symbolizing cocaine and kind of symbolizes how the drug economy has undermined democracy in Colombia. Now, at the same time, they became very dangerous. There were shootings that happened, you know, police shooting and so forth. More than two dozen people, three dozen people were killed. But, I mean, the actual vibe, so to speak, in the protests was very interesting, you know. And, uh, you know, for those who, I think, you know, supported the cause, they got a lot of life, a lot of vigor out of the, the action on the streets of cities like Bogota, Popayan, Cali, which became a center of, of the protests. You know, there was quite a lot of life on the streets and you could just see people's the sense of, 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 you know, we need to change on the streets. So one of the people I spoke to at one of these protests, this was in Bogota, the capital, was uh, Juliette Murillo. She's a 19-year-old engineering student. She basically was kind of enunciating some of the, you know, issues of frustration that young people feel. Higher cost of education, one invests a lot of money in education, and what does one get? There's very few job opportunities. Juliet was there, her 17-year-old sister, Nestle was there, and her parents, too. And you also talked to her father, 43-year-old Fernando Murillo. My day, we couldn't protest like this. We didn't have the opportunity to protest. He was in his 40s, as I recall. So he was very proud of both of his daughters, and, and he and his wife were kind of supportive of them, at the same time worried about some of the violence that had happened at some of these protests. Is there nationwide support for these protests? Is it kind of like out here in the United States, you had the Black Lives Matter protests from last year and you had some support, but also a lot of demonizing. Are you seeing that same dynamic play out in Colombia? I think in Colombia, the, the support was very widespread. It's kind of very much different, I think, what happened last summer in the States. Among all ages, I think support was widespread because the frustration is just about unanimous. And I mean... Colombia is a multiracial country. This was kind of a multiracial movement. You had substantial involvement of Afro-Colombians in the protests, substantial indigenous participation in the protests. You had several statues of Spanish conquistadores taken down by indigenous protesters. And indeed, the police in Bogota had to take down statues of Christopher Columbus and uh, Isabel Católica, Isabel, the ex-queen of Spain, who I guess hired Cristobal Colón, because uh, indigenous protests were, were so involved. There was a lot of widespread support among different segments of the population, I would say. Going against Columbus in Colombia, no less. The whole country is named after Columbus. That's interesting. And you also attended a strike. They call them paros in Spanish in the province of Cauca, which is on the Pacific side of Colombia. How did that one differ from the one in Bogota? 
Well, that was very interesting. I mean, Kauka is this extraordinary, almost breathtakingly beautiful place, green, verdant valleys, lakes, but it's also incredibly violent. On um, the countryside there, you have nautical traffickers, you know, cocaine producers, you have uh, ex-guerrilleros, you, uh, you have people grabbing land for one reason or another. But in the middle, you have a number of, a, a substantial indigenous population. They have their own reserves and areas that are often being invaded by these paramilitary forces. But in the last few years, several dozen social activists, many of them young people, have been murdered there. So you have this kind of extraordinary contrast of this beautiful landscape and this, you know, rather intense violence directed at people who are working in favor of human rights and indigenous rights specifically. One of the techniques that was used, a very controversial technique, that was used as roadblocks, and this is the main, the Panamericana Highway, which at that point links the cities of Popayan, which is in Cauca, with Cali, which is obviously a major city, and it had been blocked for more than 30 days by indigenous protesters from that area. They were blocking it to show their disaffection with the government, but also they were very upset about these very high tolls. The day I was there, they actually took it down. They reached an agreement with the government that the tolls would be reduced or eliminated, and they were kind of celebrating that as a victory. But I will say the roadblocks were very controversial because there were shortages of gasoline, shortages of food in some areas. So I think the uh, the people behind that tactic realized that after 30 days, it was probably time to kind of pull back. <laughs> One of the people I spoke to was Noelia Campo. She's an indigenous uh, leader in this very turbulent Cauca province. Uh, and she spoke about some of the issues facing indigenous and other people there during the strike. Social inequality brought us together. Today we have won a lot politically, but above all, what we have won is getting all kinds of people, the indigenous, the peasants, the young thinkers, to come together and stand up with one voice. Patrick, how are the protests looking right now? Have they calmed down? The actual street protests have definitely calmed down. Life has kind of returned to uh, some modicum of, of normality. However, as I said earlier, the underlying issues here, income inequality, health care, jobs, opportunities, those are kind of, you know, unresolved. You know, that begs the question of what's going to happen, you know, with, with the, all these unresolved issues. Uh, those situations have not kind of reached a, a termination where, where the protesters are happy about what happened. In fact, they basically pulled out of the negotiations with the government. We don't know what the next chapter in this is going to be, in truth. It's interesting that you're saying that protests are calming down because here in the United States, the realization of what's going on there is starting to pick up. I actually attended an art show in Southern California that was organized by Colombians as a fundraiser to help out protesters down there. So the diaspora is definitely caring about what's happening. How much is the Biden administration paying attention to what's going on in Colombia, especially given that, again, we are our countries are allies? Interesting. You know, I don't I mean, I think that the, if you look at the Biden administration's comments on these protests, uh, they were very carefully worded, shall we say. There was, you know, relatively little criticism of the government. As you said, I mean, you've got it. The perspective is Colombia is like a major strategic ally of the United States, major military ally. One could contrast the kind of mild criticism of, of police brutality uh, during the protests in Colombia with, you know, the reaction of the Biden administration to what, you know, a couple of days of protests in Cuba, which was very strong, very denouncing of the government in, in Havana. So the U.S. government has, you know, strongly supported the Duque administration. And I mean, its criticism has been very narrow of police tactics and other issues on the ground in Colombia. 
finally, as you mentioned, uh, with Cuba, there's also been protests of other young people across Latin America. One of the stories that you did also was in Peru. You're seeing in Brazil, all across Latin America, young people are rising up and trying to go against the status quo. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting moment. And I think, you know, coronavirus has just battered these economies to the point that, you know, the next year or two, you know, there's going to be presidential elections next year in both Colombia and Brazil. You know, obviously two countries that have had protests were hard hit by COVID, both economically and health-wise. Um, you've got left-wing candidates, potentially Lula returning in Brazil. We just had a very left-wing president elected in Peru. You know, I think this discontent could be channeled, you know, into some electoral changes in coming months. Um, you know, we shall see. Patrick, thank you so much for this interview. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the L.A. Times. Tomorrow, Native Americans suffered inordinately in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, they're a vaccination success story. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Melissa Kaplan, and Marina Peña. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb. And our theme music is by Andrew Eapen. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us the Puchia Podcasts. I'm Gustavo Arellano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this Madre. Gracias.